What is here? What is now? What is the meaning of life? That depends on what the definition of is is. <laughs> no, it only depends on what the definition of is was, actually. Or was, is, was. Welcome to the I Philosopher's Show. Yes. <laughs> Please don't listen to us. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 116 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Mike Ash. Hello from Fairfax, Virginia. James Uber. Hello from Minneapolis. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week we have a special guest, that's John Reed. Hello from Palo Alto. Wow, Palo Alto. So uh, we were talking before the show, you said you work for Microsoft, but you work in Apple's backyard, huh? Yeah, Microsofty working on iOS apps. There are such people. That's kind of part of the thing that got both Microsoft and Apple off the ground, if I remember yeah. back in the day. They're ancient frenemies. That's right. Yeah, a lot of history there. So do you want to introduce yourself? All right, let's see. I've been doing iOS for about five years, but before that, I was doing Objective-C to do Mac development. And before that, I was doing TDD. So, I don't know, I've been doing test-driven development since about 2001. So that long predates my involvement with Mac or iOS or Objective-C. But it's what I like to do now. Nice. I'm a big proponent of TDD, and I've done training at several companies, mainly in Ruby for TDD, so I show them how to TDD their Ruby or Rails apps. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, what tools do you use for testing in TDD? So I'm kind of old school in that I use XCTest, Apple's testing framework. Part of that is just by sort of by necessity in that I'm usually on Teams that are either not doing much testing or not doing TDD and they are already using XC test or not using anything. And so rather than cause cognitive overload and say, well, let's, you know, use this framework and that framework, uh, I want to ease people in through the, the biggest door, which is Apple's testing framework. So that's mainly what I use. With XC test, then I like to use my own testing frameworks to help me, which are OC Hamcrest for matching and OC Makito for mocking. So you wrote those then? OC yeah. Hamcrest and OC Makito? Mm-hmm. Now, what do you mean by matching? Matching is the ability to say whether... Well, it's basically a predicate system. In the context of testing, to be able to say, is this the same as that for only the parts I care about? So you could use equality testing for a lot of things, and just use Apple's XCT assert equal objects. But a lot of the time, that's overkill. What you want to test is actually a part of the object. For example, 
instead of comparing entire strings where prefix of the string is the only part you care about and you don't really care about the tail, then it's easy to have a matcher to say, uh, does the string start with this prefix and I don't care about the rest? It's even more important when it comes to aggregates, though, so that you can say for everything in this collection, does this uh, string prefix apply? So the matchers are composable, and that's where it kind of gets crazy and powerful. Oh, man, I'd love something like that. (laughs) It's the idea that if you get like an assertion failure, um, the error is more clear about what's going wrong and where the data came from than if you just like wrote the code manually to loop through and and check for prefixes and things like that. Yes, exactly. It tries to be much more precise to say you were looking over this collection, but this particular item failed this test. As opposed to the normal, uh, like, assert true, where it would just say, you know, I expected true and I got false and good luck. Right. Well, and especially if you build it, this is the problem with putting it in a loop, is that then, I mean, a lot of the testing frameworks that I've used, they'll tell you, on this object, I expected this and got this, but it'd be nice to just be able to put that into, yeah, one assertion or one matcher on a collection, because my code looks like over this collection loop and make these five assertions mm-hmm. and, or, you know, or use these five matchers is, is effectively depending on your style of testing, but it's not pretty and it's not always clear what's going on there. And the loop confuses things even more. And so, yeah, collection matchers. I, I love the idea. Yeah. One reason I, I like it is to get rid of loops and conditionals in test code and just have the test flow through straight. Another thing I like is kind of getting back to the better diagnostics that matchers give you is that if something just fails and you, if in the worst case scenario, you just get this thing, you know, this failed and now you better go find out why. And that means then debugging through the test. I'd rather just get that information straight up. Yeah, I can tell you that in the tools I've used, again, I do mostly Ruby, but in the tools I've used, it's it'll tell you, I have this object and I expected this result to be different from this other result, but not always. And if there's an error, like if there's some place where it creates a condition, three objects into my collection, that it actually raises an exception, then, I mean, you just get a backtrace. And so you have no idea that it was the third or fourth or tenth thing in your collection. So when we're talking about matchers, so you've got two libraries you talked about, OC Makito and you talked about Hamcrest. We're talking mm-hmm. about Ham, OC Hamcrest here, right? That's right. Okay. And you can, you can use these matchers along with XCTest? Yeah. It should work with pretty much any, maybe any is too bold to claim. Most, <laughs> most well-known testing frameworks should be able to pick up OC Hamcrest and start using it. So let's say this, I mean, this sounds great, and I want to go use it right away, and I've never heard of it before. What's the five-second version of how to get started? The easiest way is to get it if you're using CocoaPods, and you just add the Hamcrest uh, to your test target that way. Uh, If you're not using CocoaPods, then if you search for OC Hamcrest and get the latest release, I've got package binaries, or you can build it yourself. Anyway, my page on GitHub uh, if you just search for it, the readme on GitHub gets you started. Another thing about OC Hamcraft is it's not just a collection of pre-built matchers, although those are useful. It's also a framework for writing your own and extending it. So 
it makes basically turns your tests into more DSL uh, like expressions. I just pulled up the README here. It looks very comprehensive. That should be a great uh, great place to get started. Then sometimes these things can be a little mysterious until you know you're initiated into them. So that's always great to see. Yeah, OC Hamcrest is a really cool and powerful tool because. Like one of the patterns I see very often when a dev starts doing testing iOS is they use the one XCE test assertion that they know, whether it's true or equals, and they write all their tests in that. You know, they'll do whatever weird, you know, equals and return true and stuff like that. But that breaks down, especially when you talk about what we were talking about earlier with like a collection. It's hard to do a clean home rolled, uh, you know, collection, you know, pattern matching like that. So when you get into that kind of cases, something like OC Hamcrest is actually very powerful. So it's a great tool. I give it a thumbs up. I've used it in the past, and I've had pretty good success with it. Cool. What I'm curious about is the also the partial matching. So let's say that you have an object and you want to test that it meets certain criteria. How do you do that without, you know, again, having five or six assertions or five or six matchers being called well, against things? What you can do is you can basically logically combine matchers mm-hmm. with ands and ors. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So effectively so, then so, it's I expect it to have this value with or this attribute with this value and this attribute with this value and this attribute with this value. You could do that, although now that's starting to potentially smell like you may be testing too much in a single test. Mm-hmm. But... Assuming that all those things are actually focused around a single truth, then, yeah, go for it. Yeah, you it, can also build your own matchers that assert all of those things. Yeah, especially for your own classes where you want mm-hmm. to poke in and do something special. Right, so I, I, you know, I want to test that this is a valid user, and so inside of that matcher it says, do they have a username, do they have a password, you know, is it hashed, active checked, whatever. Right. You could hide all those details from the test, essentially. Then the test reads more logically, you know, is this a valid user? Gotcha. I'm going to veer a little bit more into OC Makito and mocking and stubbing. This has always been a debate that I'm happy to have with people because I always learn something and there's always interesting trade-offs that we talk about. But when is it appropriate to mock things out and when isn't it? (laughs) Well... You'd never want to mock the thing you're testing, <laughs> which, <Yes. laughs> which, right, right, that happens. Never, that happens never say never. <laughs> <laughs> because there's a lot of code where that's the only choice you have. I suppose. Well, I you suppose. know, if you can mock, if you can mock the thing you're testing extensively enough, then you don't have to actually implement it. So that would be a, a win, Ooh, right? That's right. It's perfect. Yeah, but I'm happy to not use mocks. Uh, in fact, I tell people to avoid mocks as much as possible. I've gotten into situations, this happens to everyone who discovers mocks and gets really mock happy, and I am going to mock all the things, but I think you're setting yourself up for some testing heartaches there uh, because it just starts to get crazy. I would try to mock only the immediate interactors, the things that a particular class is talking to, if possible, but even there, because things are often hidden in properties of properties. You know, you might need to jam a mock in deeper down. In general, uh, I'll credit this show for coming up with the word that I want to use and say in public. 
Use Ponzos when you can. Ponzos. <laughs> Plain old NS objects. Yep. Plain old NS objects. Pete Hodgson brought it to the forefront. First time I heard it was with him. Yep. So yeah, when I'm when I'm talking to people about mocking, usually I'm telling them if you don't own it, then you're probably okay mocking it. But it still depends on how you're using it and what your test is actually trying to assert is true. But then the other thing is is that people get into okay, well, I want to test this in isolation. And so then they use the mocks to basically create an object with the interface they expect. And the problem is is that if that interface changes or usually that's the most common breakage due to mocks that you get a false positive on. But uh, you know, anything like that, yeah, it's it's much more convenient to use a plain old NS object or the actual type of object you're gonna use if you can. Right. And then I also see people sometimes mock things out because whatever they're talking to isn't very performant, but you you really have to be careful with that because, yeah, you want to test that things are getting done, but by mocking that out, you're creating a place where your test can give you a false positive. That's where I think a lot of the time people have trouble getting into the test mentality is because people ask me questions, how do I test this specific code? And the answer is, ooh, I don't like that code. (laughs) I was waiting for you to say, rewrite it. (laughs) If something is hard to test, that's an indicator. That is a valuable form of feedback from the tests itself. Mm -hmm. Not just pass-fail result, but how do I feel about this and how difficult is this to wire up? Well, and you also have to break down... Now, is it hard to test because I don't have a tool that's specifically attuned to the situation? Or is it hard to test because it's hard for me to look at it and know how to explain in code what it's supposed to do? Mm -hmm. And if you can't explain it that explicitly in code what it's supposed to do, then it probably needs some attention. Listen to your tests. Yep. I'm also curious, what does your TDD process actually look like? So let's say you're going to add a feature (laughs) to an iOS app Now, you mentioned you work for Microsoft. I'm assuming it's all right if we mention you work on Skype. Yep. So let's say that you wanted to add a feature to Skype where every time somebody typed the word whistle, their phone would whistle at them. How would you TDD something like that? Like, how would you approach that with TDD? Mm. So I am still kind of an inside-out type person. I'm trying to retrain myself right now to be a little more outside in, but I typically like to build up my infrastructure and test those things so that I know that each component I've created is a good, solid, and controllable Lego block and continue to assemble those Lego blocks into something bigger. And that usually works for me. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes I'll end up in a situation where, oh, shoot, I've apparently gone down a bad trail somewhere. But more, that's very unusual. More often than not, I assemble the building blocks and put it together and then actually hook it up in the UI and try it. And it is not that unusual to have it work first time out of the gate. Yeah, there's definitely a good point about if you get into this workflow where you're writing tests before you're actually running the code, you're running the app, you can get into a you know workflow where, yeah, your feature works the first time you, you run it. And I've gotten in that workflow a number of times where I can just write the tests, they pass, run the app, and, yep, it worked. Okay, I'm good. It's still thrilling, though. Yeah. Eric, like, oh, gosh, it's like, yes! 
<laughs> yeah. Celebration. Yeah. For me, TDD is is like completely gamifying the development process. It's all about giving me that endorphin rush. <laughs> <laughs> Red challenge accepted. Green exactly. challenge completed. Apple's quite a bit behind still in their kind of environment, at least with Xcode, about giving the red green. You know, when I did .NET stuff and was learning to do TDD stuff, they've got auto test runners where you can just code and it'll run the test behind the scenes. So actually, after you write the code, it just turns green without you to running, do anything. That hasn't happened in the iOS land yet. I wish someone would work on it because it's a really cool workflow. And it de- definitely does hit those reward centers that help us keep motivated. So you you know, you're writing failing tests, you're writing passing tests, and, you know, you get green lights just by writing the code. That is cool. I think I've seen somebody hook up a system like that, but I've never seen it in person. For, I mean, using, you know, Xcode's uh, command line tools in the background. Hmm. Someday, someday my, my dreams will come true. Now I just we... hope it's sandbox so that I don't make a typo and blow away all my documents or something. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, does Microsoft or Skype uh, mandate that there be tests and that you use TDD, or is that your own personal preference? I have always used TDD in kind of environments that are either hostile or just we don't care. (laughs) Here at Microsoft, I can't speak for the larger... I mean, it's a huge company. Oh, sure. So many people, and, and I know there, there are TDD fanatics elsewhere. In iOS land, I see folks write a lot of unit tests, but I can't really tell. It doesn't look like TDD to me, but then I'm only looking at the tests after they're done, so I, I can't really see what's going on as people write it. So when we're talking about TDD, how is that different from just writing unit tests? So it comes back for me to the classic three steps, uh, red-green refactor. And red meaning you start by writing a failing test to express something that you want to add to your code. Green, you make that, basically you implement that in the quickest way you know how, just to get it so that the test passes. It goes from red to green. And in doing that, what you're doing is verifying the plumbing that the tests and the system under test are actually affecting each other. That is, if I change code in the system under test, the light on the test changes, red, green, red, green. You can toggle it back and forth. Once you have that in place, then the real gold to me of TDD is the third step, uh, maybe the most neglected step. To me, it's the most powerful step, and that's refactoring. Because once you get the code working however you want it to in the cheapest, quickest way, then you step back and say, now how do I make that better? How do I improve that? How do I change the design of the code and also of the tests to be more expressive and and simple? And then you do that again and again, those three steps over and over and over. Do you ever try and write code that's test afterward and just see how it comes out differently? I don't do TDD for everything. I try to, but there are some cases where I just really don't know what I want it to do yet. So in that, you know, you can't specify something if you don't really have a specification in mind. If it's more like, I'll know it when I see it, well then I'll hack on something. I'll usually add tests to existing code around legacy code that I want to change. 
just to make sure I don't break it. So what are some examples of iOS code that doesn't really adapt well to TDD? Animation. <laughs> Although even there, that could just be because I'm just getting familiar with animation myself. Skype obviously has audio video components there too. I'm learning. And so when you're in a situation where you're relying on Apple's frameworks to do stuff and to call you back in a certain way, if you don't know what those interaction patterns are, then you can't really TDD it. But once you learn those patterns, the simplest would be like working with table views. Once you figure out, oh, now Apple calls this method, this delegate method back to get, you know, the number of rows and so forth, then you can start to do, uh, reverse the process and start to specify those things up front. But if you're not really familiar with how Apple's going to talk to you, then you better go sort of step back and do some exploratory work first. So yeah, animation, video, audio, those things I think don't lend themselves well to TDD. Other things that do that might surprise people are other parts of view controllers, like table views, for example. You can certainly TDD those things. I definitely like to hear you elaborate on uh, user interface testing in general because um, that's something I've always had trouble figuring out. And uh, you mentioned animations, and it to me, all the problems there sort of describe user interface in general, but it sounds like you are more optimistic about that. So I'd love to hear what your approach is on thoughts on that. Yeah, my general approach with sort of the, the interface is that I want to test interactions and, and logic, not so much the visual behavior, although even that you can capture, for example, rendering something, making sure that your, draw, your custom drawing is correct. That's not something I'd TDD, but once I'm happy with the code, I'd lock it down with the snapshot test case that would then let me refactor that code. But in terms of other interaction type stuff, again, if it's something for which the patterns of interaction between your code and Apple's code are very clear and well known, this calls that and that calls this, then once you write that code, once you test drive that code, that is you you use tests to drive the creation of that code, then it should just work. I have not really written any UI level testing yet. I've always relied on the sort of the guts of uh, unit testing. When you talk about UI tests, what are you talking about? I'm talking about actually driving UI elements through Kiwi or Frank or now Apple is providing the ability to do the same thing in uh, XC test. Okay, so actually clicking on a button, whatever, whatever tools, the JavaScript framework that you know Xcode provides, or not Xcode, but yeah, where, that framework. Where, yeah, you know, tap the to actually tap this button. People, I think, want too badly, too desperately to write such tests. I think because they're easy to imagine and they're easy to understand. The problem is that anything that involves the UI because of animation, transitions, and so forth, it's slow. It's just really, really slow and fragile. So I'm not saying don't write those. Uh, you certainly need those, but a few of them to guarantee that things are hooked up correctly. 
Instead, the way I write tests for view controllers is, for example, to take a button and say, well, does first, does this button exist? And then what is the action that's uh, hooked up for tap up inside this button? And then rather than synthesize some sort of actual tap event and send it to the button, I'll just call the, uh, the action method and say, well, let's just assume you know, there's no need to test Apple's ability to invoke a method on a button. I trust that that works. Let's just invoke the method as if the button were tapped. So you're actually calling the method in code, whether, you know, when actually running the app, it's being called by, you know, the nib. Right. But you're also testing that the button was created. You can also test that. You can also test that there is an action that calls the method you want to test. So you're testing all the things that happen if you actually click on the button. Yeah. But they're in different parts. Yeah. So it's basically it's a it's a test in three parts. Does the button exist? Does it have this associated action? Call the action. Do you do any end-to-end testing? I know that I talk to a lot of people who do this for the web and you know, I basically tell them more or less what you said and that's just, you know, where it's absolutely critical, you know, happy path. We're not going to get paid if this doesn't work. You know, I, I encourage them to do end-to-end testing. But it seems like if you're testing like delegates and things like that where it's, okay, well, we need to get the data for the UI table view. So we're going to make the request and make sure we got the right data back. You know, do you test that all the way down to the data store or do you mock that part out and just make it really fast? So dealing with, with the data store, I would, to me, that's, that's a separate responsibility. And so I would essentially create some sort of fake when dealing with core data, for example, I would create an in-memory data store right. uh, and say, Let, let's just use this thing because it'll be faster. For dealing with networking calls, I will put some actual calls to the actual service in a separate target, not in the usual unit testing target for a couple reasons. Making a call to an actual service is slow, and I like to be able to do TDD from wherever I am, including on a plane uh, without Wi-Fi. I'm cheap. Mm-hmm. So if I can turn off all my network connections and, and run most of my tests, all of my unit tests, then I'm, I'm happy. But I will still have uh, some tests, again, in a separate target to confirm uh, network communication to the real server. That is, I've found more insurance against changes on the server side. <laughs> Even if you're working in a company where, where the server part is owned by the same company and you think, oh, they're, they're my buddies, uh, they wouldn't change anything out from under me without notifying me, right? <laughs> yeah, been there, felt that pain. But are there instances where you want to test the whole stack? I've left that to other people. I think that's where other kinds of acceptance testing come in, and that's n- not where I've played. Okay. I think that's... Pretty solid, at least mm-hmm. you know having your slower tests, your network tests in a different project because if the tests are slow, they're not going to get run. If your devs don't have confidence that they can run these tests efficiently, they're not going to run them. And if you have tests sitting around that no one's running, they break, no one knows about it, and you have a useless test base. So it makes sense that whatever tests you have that you're running frequently, that you can run them frequently. And you know, it takes 30 seconds, however long, but run your tests, okay, they pass, you can move on. Because if you don't have that, the whole workflow falls apart. Yeah, I, I would actually argue 
that uh, if you end up with a bunch of broken tests because you haven't been running them in a long time, that it's even worse than useless. Because if you uh, if the tests were just useless, then you could just sort of move on, you know, start over, whatever. But if you have tests that are actively breaking, I think it's an impediment to adding new ones because then you have to fix all this other junk too to make things work again. And so yeah. you definitely don't want to let your project fall into that kind of state. Yeah, and I think fast tests really help with that just because then there is no or very little cost to running them frequently. Yep. And frequently is a is a key because with TDD, that three-step cycle is sometimes very tight and quick. Like you might go through all three steps in a minute. Yeah, I had a client that I did some training for and they, so they would run their tests against basically their back end and it would break because the back end would eventually crash during a test run. You could almost guarantee that it would. And so they quit running their tests, but they were required to write them. So they were writing more tests that would, you know, you'd get a whole bunch of basically false failures because it was throwing up an error that said, I tried to talk to the network and it, it crashed, you know? So we had a long discussion about how to make the tests basically to mock out that layer so that it was, it was like, I am hitting the data layer. And then for the longer running tests, because you do want the integration with the backend system, you know, I, I highly encourage them to use continuous integration. And that way they could then put that up there. And of course, they still had to solve their issues with the back end to make it more stable and more um, reliable. But in the meantime, then people could continue to write tests that they could reliably say everything works and they could run it quickly. And then for the other tests, like I said, then it was CI. And I encourage them also to put that up where people could then check on it. And so then if there was some discontinuity between the APIs on the back end and the requests on the, the front end system, then they could see those and be able to fix them quickly. Yeah, your CI system can run a much larger and longer suite of tests than you would want to do when you're doing TDD, or even if you're not doing TDD, if you're just working yourself uh, and running the unit tests uh, often the CI can run those and all the others that are too slow mm -hmm. uh, and catch things fairly quickly, at least, you know, hopefully on a particular commit. Yeah, and ultimately, I mean, this for me is about communication and collaboration and the fact that you have uh, somebody else's assumptions or your own assumptions codified somewhere where you can then check in with it frequently without actually having to go ask somebody, you know, does this break your part of the system? is very important and then having it easy to access for the things that aren't so quick to check it just makes a lot of sense and then you can have your ci system yell and scream and cry at people over their email if somebody broke something the great thing about building up a good suite a useful suite of tests is the ability to sleep at night to mm -hmm. live without fear my kind of earlier days of coding before i got into unit testing I was on a team with a bunch of people who had been given this uh, legacy glob of code and everyone was afraid to touch it because you never knew what was going to break. And that's the worst kind of uh, a development to have. Oh, yeah. Whereas with a solid suite of tests, you're basically given the freedom to change anything that has been tested. So what if somebody gets handed that big ball of untested code? What, what do you recommend people do? Ah, we're going to get into one of my picks, but if I can sneakily advance it, 
<laughs> run out and buy Working Effectively with Legacy Code. It's the key that unlocked things for me. But basically, the idea is to try to box things off, to find the places where you can cut. And if you have this glob, this gnarly mess of code, find a way to isolate part of it. That part of it may be only the new code that you're going to write. And you're just not going to touch the other stuff. But at least get the code that you're going to add under test. Now, that may mean that you're going to write tests as if you were the rest of the code calling back into your code. But at least now you're creating sort of a, a very small API for a very small part of the code. And you're going to make that sane. And that can gradually then spread it's harder with sort of the bigger the chunks are, and so the challenge is to find ways to isolate things behind walls as much as possible. Yep. I can definitely attest for that book. It's very useful. I, a couple of years ago, I worked with a client who had a code base that was 20, 30 years old. So it had you know, was tons of stuff built up, and that book was invaluable to getting things working and getting code that we could test and gives a lot of really cool techniques for it. And ironically, most of the devs that worked there had a copy of that book, but apparently never used it. Maybe they never read it. Yeah, it was just a monitor stand for them or something. I'm not sure why. (laughs) Helps hold down the bookcase. Oh, I know why. It was because some manager said, hey, everybody get this book. And they all did. This is true. It's possible. I've seen that. Did he pay for them or did he make everyone buy them themselves? (laughs) You have to buy it yourself. (laughs) Yeah. And not read it. But John, the other library you talked about was OC Makito. Yeah. And so the default tool everyone uses, because it's been around forever, I was surprised how old it is, is OC Mach. What does OC Makito bring to the table? So, yeah, OC Mach is the granddaddy of them all. And uh, I used it and contributed to it and started to feel some pain with it especially around uh, when a verification would fail, it throws an exception. And I think it was like for Mac testing, that was okay because the Mac testing framework would catch it and report it. But for iOS testing, it would just crash. And that was the end of story. Something like that. Now that probably changed in the past few years. But still, I wanted something that would more precisely report, with more than an exception, what expectation was not met. And I got tipped off by an online friend uh, as I was starting to look for alternatives. And he said, look at this thing, Makito. It approaches mocking in a different way. So OC Mock was written kind of in the classical mocking style when mock mock object frameworks were first invented basically out of JMock, which is in a style where you set up your expectations first and then execute your code, and then you tell the mock objects, verify your expectations. Makito flips that around and says, no, let's just set up your mock so that it exists. It's ready. It's in play when your code is run. Run your code. Now, what the mocks are doing is recording the calls that were made to it. Now, let's go back and query the mocks and say, these are my expectations. So your expectation comes as an assertion at the end rather than 
during the setup at the beginning. It makes for tests that read better. OC Mock did come out with a major uh, new version that brings the new style of mocking to the fore so that you end up with uh, verifications at the end. But that's a pretty new development. The other thing I wanted with OC Makito was to make the Hamcrest matchers a first-class citizen so that for testing what arguments were sent to a particular method, rather than having them be very strict and just using equality, to be able to have a matcher that says, well, as long as it satisfies these predicates, it's good. So by not throwing an exception, OC Makito actually identifies a line where the verification fails so that you can just click on it in whatever ID you're using and go straight to that part of the test. Okay. So the benefits of OC Makito are, one, there's better integration with OC Hamcrest. And the second one is that you can write the test afterward. So you run the code and you can verify, did this happen? Did this happen? Did this happen? Versus studying it all up front, which is yep. kind of the old way of doing it. But I think the way of doing it afterwards it definitely does write clear tests. Like, okay, did this happen? Did this happen? You know, it's it's closer to how we do it mentally. Uh, one feature I remember being missing from OC Makito, and this gets back to when I mentioned that you should never modify the the test you're trying to the class you're trying to test. Uh, partial mocks are those? Yeah, still not in OC Makito. No. Uh, they are not in OC Makito. And so if you really want partial mocks I, and people ask for them, I say, yeah, maybe you should use OC Mock instead. I took a crack at partial mocking and found out that it's harder than I thought. OC Mock uses a very clever system, which I may borrow someday, of dynamically subclassing. So when you create a partial mock, it actually, on the fly, uses the Objective-C runtime and says, let's create a subclass of the object and then replace certain things on it. That matches what you would do with a hand-rolled mock, and that's pretty cool. But if you feel the need for a partial mock, that could be a smell. Well, it definitely is a smell, but it's also very easy to write a view controller that is not testable. So when you encounter one that hasn't been, people haven't been actively writing tests for, it's almost invariably something that you have to at least start stubbing out, you know, doing the partial box. Yeah. So I, and that, I run across that just from a pragmatic purpose, like, yeah, this is the only way I can test this right now. Yeah. And that's where I fall back on sort of the, the biggest technique I got out of the uh, Michael Feathers book, which is subclass and override, which is basically partial mocking to take the thingy that you want to test, but it's making calls to something that you really don't want to have happen during a test, then you override those bits and say, well, let's not do that. And so when I need that kind of control, usually with legacy code, I'll fall back on doing it manually. That makes sense. So speaking of subclass and override, do you look into doing you know any Makito type things with Swift? I have not. I've left Swift to to the brave young folks out there because uh, I've seen, up until recently, a bit too much pain around the tooling to make me want to invest in Swift, uh, especially because OCMock and OCMakito rely on introspection to make a dynamic fake of something. 
and Apple, as far as I know, hasn't yet provided introspection for Swift, then you kind of have to fall back on old school stuff. So is it a total no-go then in Swift? I don't know. And that's where I would ask uh, Brian Gesiak, uh, one of the main authors of the Quick framework. He'd be a good person to get on the show. I mean, I've tried to do some stuff with OC mock with Swift because, you know, even you know, with a purely Swift object, you know, you're not going to get your runtime stuff that you need to do any mocking. But we're still dealing, dealing with a ton of things that are still derived from NS object, which have all that in there. So yeah. in theory, you know, we could step out things, and if they're derived from NS object, we could mock them and do all sorts of crazy things with. Them. I've had very little success trying to get OC mock working with Swift. I've tried, but generally, if I'm doing testing in Swift, I'm subclassing an override, doing that all the time. And the benefit of Swift, it's much less intrusive to do that. You can put it inside the class, so you don't have to worry about it. You're not creating a header file and an implementation file to make that happen. But in general, it's a lot easier to do a subclass and override. But I was hoping someone would be would figure out kind of being able to mock the the, the dynamic stuff in Swift, but. So far, no luck. Anyone's figured that out, let me know. So I want to go back to one thing that you said earlier, John, and that is that you typically approach your TDD from the inside out and that you would like to do more from the outside in. What do you see as the trade-offs between the two? I think with an outside-in approach, you're, I don't know. You see, I, I just haven't done it that much yet, so I can't speak from personal experience. Uh, usually I'll, I'll work inside out and then I'll add an outside in test at the end. I'm, like I said, I'm trying to maybe do more acceptance TDD, ATDD by starting from the outside in. But I think like one of the reasons I've not done ATDD is because I don't want a failing test hanging around while I'm trying to create something. I suppose it would go in a separate target for acceptance tests, but I need things to be green before I can refactor. So from an inside-out perspective, like I said, I think it depends on uh, strong design skills to be able to come up with those Lego building blocks that are actually going to work when you snap them together. And maybe if you're not as certain what those blocks should be, uh, outside-in may be more valuable. Yeah, I've used out I've done outside in and the thing that I like about it is that it tends to drive what the next thing is that I need to build. So I start at the very outer layer and then it's okay, well I need this information or I need this side effect or I need this other thing and so as I work my way through it, then you know, I'll say okay, well I'm going to call into this object to do whatever and so that's the next thing that I TDD and I get a unit test on that. But yeah, I can see it does. It stays red for a while unless you start mocking and then putting in and pulling out mocks, and, and that can be painful. So, Yeah, yeah. so I, th I think I would probably keep it on a separate target so that I can have my failing acceptance test stay red in one place but have a uh, nice green uh, state for my TDD. Yep. Yeah, then when you get to, okay, what do I do now? Then you go run that acceptance test, and it tells you which piece you're missing next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something I'm going to work on getting better at. Well, this is fun. We've gone into some fun areas exploring different areas of testing. Are there things that you just plain don't test? Like I said, animation, I think, is the type of thing where the quality of it has to be felt 
to know mm-hmm. whether it's good or not. Any other thoughts that you have, John? Things that we should talk about or didn't bring up? Well, I'll, I'll just, I think, get on my little soapbox for a second and uh, urge people to, to try TDD. There is strange resistance to me in the developer community as a whole of skeptics. I don't know if you've been told by management to do TDD because it's going to make everything wonderful and you do it and you discover it's not easy and it doesn't make everything necessarily wonderful and so you say this sucks. I I would urge people to have another look. Yep, totally agree. It's how I live. It's how I sleep. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, I've been doing TDD for, what, uh, 14 years now and it's the thing that's changed my programming more than anything else. Yeah, it's worth restating that learning to code this way is hard. You're going to start doing it and you'll be like, this makes no sense. How do you do this? And you figure it out and it takes a long time. So you have to put the work in to get the value out. If you just do a a little bit, you're not going to get that much out of it. And that's just how it is. But that gets glossed over by the evangelists thing. Oh, this will make everything perfect. And it won't. It just has new headaches, but things you can learn. But you know, at the end of the road, things are better. Your code is better. You know, you can keep adding features, all the things that our managers expect of us. But you have to get over that hump. This is true. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Mike, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure. I keep convincing myself that I've done this one before, but I searched around and I'm pretty sure I haven't. Maybe I discussed it. Anyway, uh, wit.ai is one of my favorite tools out there, and I've never used it for anything practical, but it's just so cool that I always like to introduce people to it. Uh, What it is, basically, it's Siri in a box, and um, it's got all the tools that you need to build a natural language response system. It will take speech or text and you give it, uh, train it by example. So you've got a list of things that you want it to identify and you just give it sentences, uh, that like you say, you know, turn on the light or, uh, start the car or what's the temperature today or something like that. And then you manually categorize some of those examples and then it learns on its own from there. And it spits back easy to parse JSON, telling you what you found. So it makes it really easy to take uh, natural language input and turn it into actions that your programs can take. And it's a lot of fun to mess around with and uh, see what you can do. That sounds really cool. And uh, it's totally free to get started with. They have paid plans if you want fancy stuff, but uh, the, the free stuff will take you a long way. All right, Jane, do you have some picks for us? Sure, I've got some picks. And I do the same picks every time we talk about testing. One is a screencast by our guest today, which has been around for two and a half years. Seems like it was much longer ago, but it's a great tutorial to get started with UI testing. You know, we talked earlier about testing that your your nib is wired up correctly, your view controllers are set up. You know, I remember like, like how do you even test that? I did not know. And John does a screencast that just does a really simple overview of how to do that in that kind of got the light on for me and allowed me to move forward and fi- figure out new ways to test. So I'm going to the UI view controller TDD screencast. I haven't seen it in a while, but I imagine it's still good. All right. Um, it's good. Oh yeah. One more, one okay. more. I also, every time we talk you about, paused. I know you pause, you die. That's how it goes in the podcast world. 
Uh, Graham, there's an excellent, excellent book by Graham Lee, Test Driven iOS Development, which helps you go through like how do you test a view controller, a table view controller, anything like that. So those are great resources for people trying to figure out how to start writing tests. So those are my picks. Great pick there. Uh, I've got a couple of picks. Um, so on Saturday, my sister got married. Uh, she's the eighth of 10 kids. So while we were doing that, I wound up doing video of a lot of things at her wedding. And I just, I don't have one of those high-end cameras that a lot of people use. So I was just using an iPhone and uh, I found a few tools that I wound up using for some of this stuff. The first one is, it's just a little clip that they use the same standard size screw on tripods and things like that. And so I found a little clip that will mount on there and it'll hold your phone in place. So you can put it on a tripod or on my second pick, which is the, I have a little camera stabilizer and it's a handheld stabilizer. It has a couple of counterweights on it. So you can basically balance it out for your phone or your camera and you can put fairly good sized cameras on there and have it balance them out. But then as you hold onto the handle and you move it around, basically it stays level. And so you can move it up and down or to the side. You can you can get good panning shots with it and stuff like that. So I, I really liked shooting with that as well. So I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. And then if you're interested in that kind of video or videography with a phone or even a nice high-end camera, you can check those out. John, do you have some picks for us? Well, I've already blown one pick, which was uh, Michael Feathers working effectively with Legacy Code which basically taught me how to do Martin Fowler's refactoring stuff with existing code. So that's one. My other two picks are things that have already been mentioned on previously on this show, but I'll say them again to put in my vote for App Code as a great IDE made by the same folks who make IntelliJ. So it brings all sorts of refactoring power, also code analysis. It shows typos in your camel-cased variable names. You know, that's awesome. <laughs> so I still use Xcode for, for certain things, but for editing code, AppCode is my friend. And uh, my last pick is the Clean Code video series by Uncle Bob, Bob Martin, where he talks about all sorts of things, including TDD, but in order to do TDD well, I think you need to have, like I said, a good grasp on design. And a lot of the show is about design principles. So that's at cleancoders.com. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming, John. It was really fun to talk about testing. Yeah, glad that uh, this finally worked out. I've been wanting to be on the show for a while. Man, you make us sound famous or something. All right, well, we'll, we'll go ahead and wrap kind, up the show. Kind of a big deal. <laughs> I didn't want to say anything. All right. Well, thanks for coming, and uh, we'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at ifreakshow.com slash forum.